great thing to sing this morning, right? And to know that God is mighty and that God is holy and that our soul can rejoice in Him. We're going to end uh, Jonah today. We're in Jonah chapter 4. Andrew has, has read for us the, the 11 verses of Jonah chapter 4. And before we, we jump into it, uh, let me invite you to get your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 4. And at the same time, on the inside of the announcement sheet that I asked you to make sure that you had a copy of uh, during the announcement, you'll find a little green uh, half sheet of paper that you can use as an outline and a, and a place to make notes and fill in the blanks as we go through the final installment on this series of Jonah. And uh, now that you've got all of that done, let's pray lastly and ask God to, to enrich us and to magnify our knowledge and, and wisdom of Him through this book and in our, our work and effort and sweat to study. Father, we're, we're humbled once again just, just to hear these words read and to know that they're not only true, but they're wonderfully true. That you do care about not just the great cities, but about everyone in those cities, Father, whether we know our right hand from our left or not. And that you look down as a creator upon this creation that has been marred by sin. And there's, there's still even a, a wonderful, warm place in your heart for all of the animals. You just... You just do this to us all the time, Father, where You reveal Yourself to us in ways and through Your Spirit, working with our mind and our heart to change us and, and, and to make us better people, Father. People that reflect not just knowledge, but Your presence in our life. And as we, we study this final chapter, Father, we're asking in the name of Christ to give us eyes that see and ears that hear. For we more than anything else, Father, want to live the life that is light and, and salt in this world that points people to You and points them in such a, a, a peace-loving and joy-giving way. Thank You for being our Father and our Shepherd and our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said. There's a, a story about Bach, the composer at one time, his wife was, was playing the harpsichord. He, he was in bed. She was in the music room. And she kept playing this unresolved chord, this unresolved seventh. And it bothered him so much that he, he couldn't get to sleep that night. So he finally got out of bed. He went to the music room. He sat down at the harpsichord. And he played the appropriate resolved chord so that he could finally go to sleep. Now, I never said that was going to be a funny story. It's just a story about Bach. But it's also a story that reminds us that there's something in us that cries out for, for dissonance to be resolved. And, and that is how the book of Jonah climaxes and comes to a conclusion in the fourth chapter. God sings grace to Jonah and he likes it. And God sings grace to Nineveh and Jonah hates it. The story has both harmony and dissonance in it. Now, the dissonance word in the book of Jonah is evil. There is something wrong with God's world. And that's why in the first chapter, the first 
couple of verses, God says, you know, the, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and he says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its, its, its wickedness has come up to me. There is dissonance in the world because its wickedness, the, the wickedness, the great wickedness of the city of Nineveh has come up before me. Something is off with God's world. There's violence, and there's lost people, and there's sin, and God can't tolerate that. And that kind of, of dissonance is, is not going to sit well in God's heart. He's angry at sin. He's angry at injustice, and he's angry at violence and oppression. He is angry at all of that. But the other part is this. God also loves Nineveh. One of the things that you see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God loves the oppressed. He also loves the oppressors. He loves everybody. And because there is that sin and because there is that lostness and because He is a righteous God who loves perfectly and is seeking to redeem creation, He has to act. And so He says in the second verse to Jonah, Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so God is doing something about it. God sins and Jonah goes, but he goes the opposite direction. He runs away. And so God has to send again. He sends this time a great wind and he sends a great storm to stop Jonah. And the ship that he is on is threatened. And what we read in the first chapter is that the sailors had to cast lots to see who is responsible for all of this evil that's taking place. And lo and behold, it's not Nineveh where only the godless pagans live. The sailors cast lots to see who is responsible, and all the lots point in one direction. Whose disobedience, whose evil has prompted the storm? Jonas. There is evil, only this time it's Jonah. Now to the people that are reading this text, when it was written hundreds of years ago, the Israelites, reading this story right now, there is dissonance. There is, this, there is this disobedience, and it's not of the pagans, but there is this disobedience of, of God's prophet, and this kind of dissonance they cannot stand. And so as the story progresses, God appoints this well to swallow Jonah, keeps him alive for three days. Jonah cries out to God from the fish. God forgives his disobedience. God saves his life. And Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, but it's pretty clear from the summary that Jonah does not really want to go to Nineveh for one solid reason. Jonah does not like the Ninevites. It's pretty simple. He doesn't like them. He preaches a message, and this is the extent of what we're told is the content of the message. Verse 4 of chapter 3. Forty more days... Nineveh will be overturned. It's kind of vague, but it's very ominous. But notice, again, that there's no mention about God or God's character or sin or injustice or repentance or forgiveness or mercy. It's just Jonah. Five words in Hebrew. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Not a very good sermon. But the strangest thing happens. The Ninevites listen and they begin to respond. Now, 
Now think about this for a moment from Jonah's perspective. Jonah is not going to put his heart in this message at all. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He's not going to put his heart into this message. And yet the people's hearts get broken and their eyes fill with tears because the Spirit of God has come on them and they're convicted of sin. And there is not just sort of occasional or sporadic or spotty repentance. There is national repentance. And it's so widespread, we are told, that not only the king down to the poorest and the weakest citizen repent, but even the, an, the, uh, the, the, the animals wear sackcloth. Now here's the thing. Have you ever seen an animal repent? You know, uh, a couple of years ago, a German shepherd dog or so ago that we had uh, got home from church one Sunday and it had been raining. The backyard was pretty muddy. So we let this dog out and the dog is covered with mud. And we invite the dog back into the house, but right there at the door we're trying to stop this dog because it's covered with mud and we have a white couch in the living room. And this dog is a big dog. It's a German Shepherd. It's a man's dog. And this dog gets away. And this dog uh, jumps from piece of furniture to piece of furniture, including that white, that white sofa. I mean, I'm looking at this thing and I'm kind of amazed, thinking that dog looks like a kangaroo. And then all of a sudden, I got so angry at that dog and I punished her. And I'm sitting down on the hearth looking at all of this furniture that, to me, it looks ruined. And this German shepherd dog comes over where I was sitting and she sits down in front of me and she puts her nose right here under my shoulder. The dog was saying it was sorry. It was her way of saying she was sorry. A dog's way of saying she was sorry. You ever see a cat do that? It probably does. Don't send me emails. <laughs> but the point of the story is that the people of Nineveh are so unbelievably overcome by an awareness of their sin. It's not because Jonah gave this eloquent sermon, but because God has been working on their hearts, they, and they repent the best way that they know how, and they pull out all of, the, all of the stops. Even the animals wear sackcloth. And God describes them later in the book as a people who do not know their right hand from their left. It's probably talking about the men only. I don't know. But that's a way of talking about people who do not know their, their, their right from their wrong. They're up from their down. And there's a way that it describes God, that He is a God that is filled with compassion. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, church, what did they do? Repented. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. What's another way to say turn from their evil ways? Repentance. He had what? He had what, church? As a church that believes in God, we believe that He is a God of passion. He has compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. They repent and God forgives. Now that is theological harmony. 
They have turned away from their violence and their aggression and their sin, and they are repenting. And not only are they repenting, but what are they receiving, church? Grace. God's compassion. Now, the story could end, except for one little tiny note of discord, in this wonderful symphony. Jonah looks at all of this, and you think he would be thrilled, but he's not. This could have been the greatest spiritual achievement in all of his ministry. It's the whole city of Assyrians. And they are brought to God through his preaching. And even if he wasn't preaching the greatest message ever, it's because when God moves, things happen. Not because of human effort, but because God is moving through Jonah. But here's his reaction in a very literal translation of the Hebrew. And it was grievous unto Jonah, a great evil. And he is displeased at it. Jonah can't take it. This can't happen. He looks at Nineveh repenting and being forgiven by God, and he says, you know what? This is what's evil. Nineveh being saved. That's what's evil. And not just evil. What kind of evil? A great evil. Now, this is the only time in the story that the word great, which is always applied to God and what God is doing, and evil are brought together, and there's a reason for this. What is great to God, grace to Nineveh, Nineveh being forgiven, is a great evil to Jonah. Jonah is okay with grace that was being given to him, but now it's going to those, those rascally uh, Assyrians in Nineveh, and Jonah is not okay with that. In fact, Jonah is hacked. Jonah sees his enemy being converted, and he says, this is a great evil. Now, at the start of this book, to any Israelite reading it, and, and to you and to me, we think God's big problem in this book is, what are you going to do about Nineveh? We've read Nahum. We know they're cruel. We know about the fish hooks in the cheek as they're dragging people off into exile. We know about Nineveh. What are you going to do about it? It's sin city. Those people are, are degrading and, and, they're, and they're vile. And we think that God's big problem is, what in the world are you going to do with Nineveh? But that's not God's only big problem in the book. God's other big problem is, what am I going to do about Jonah? What am I going to do about the man of God who is smug and superior and who has a resentful heart? That's God's other big problem. Now, for the second time in this story, because it's a two-part story, story, Jonah prays. The first time he prays, he prays when he's desperate, when he's in the fish, in the water, and it looks like he's going to die, and he really wants to live. And so he prays, Oh God, oh God, oh God, help me. Let me live, forgive my disobedience, and God gives him the grace. Then God also gives grace to Nineveh through Jonah, and what does he say? Chapter 4, verse 2. Oh Lord... Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate as a God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I don't know about you, but that's an unbelievable prayer. The first time Jonah's going to die... And he prays, God, let me live. And he gets to live. 
This time, he's in the middle of this amazing triumph of life, and he prays, God, let me die. At this point, I don't think he really wants to die. I think he sounds like a 13-year-old. He says, God, I want my own way, and I want it to be the destruction of the Ninevites. Did you notice, by the way, how he started the whole prayer off? He says, this is what I said would happen back home, oh God. Now, in fact, Jonah, at least in, in, in our Jonah, didn't say anything like this back home in the first chapter. What we see is Jonah running away out of fear of going to Nineveh. Now he conveniently remembers himself as the champion of justice. And he claims that he always knew that God was going to go soft and get grace-filled on the Assyrians. But there's something else that's going on in this prayer that would be very apparent to the readers. And I think it's important for us to see it, to, to, to see this tension. Jonah says, Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick, uh, quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are, what, a gracious and what? Compassionate God, slow to, and abounding in, a God who relents from sending calamity, right? Now what Jonah is doing here is quoting the most famous confession of God's identity in the history of Israel. And if you remember your, your Exodus reading, uh, this is from Exodus, from Moses, or with Mo when Moses is with God on Mount Sinai. And God has just given him the Ten Commandments, and Moses says, God, I would, before I leave, more than anything else, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay. And this passage out of Exodus 34, verse 6, was memorized by every Jewish person. They knew it by heart. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, he passed, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and what, church? What word? Faithfulness. That's what Jonah quotes. Everybody knows these words when they read them, only Jonah leaves something out. He leaves something out, and what he leaves out would be screamingly obvious to any Israelite reading this text. This would be like forgetting the words to row, row, row your boat. Joseph leaves out the word faithfulness. Now everybody knows what's going on. In doing so, Jonah is impugning the character of God. Grace is great, God, but what about the faithfulness? You said you were going to blast them, and I took you at your word. I told them 40 days, and Nineveh would become Sodom and Gomorrah. It's hellfire and brimstone. Now, God, it's not going to happen, and I'm going to look like a fool. What's worse, I'm going to go back to Israel, your people, your chosen people, and I'm going to look to your people like I like the Ninevites. They got converted, for goodness sake. And I don't like them. I don't like them at all. And I thought you didn't like them because you liked us. You know, Anne Lamont, the writer, says, you can tell that you have made God in your image when it turns out that He hates all the same people you do. But God is so patient with Jonah. Jonah goes on this tirade. He impugns God's character. And all God says in return is, Have you any right to be angry? 
And Jonah doesn't give any answer. Like a 13-year-old, Jonah gives God the silent treatment. And in the next part of the story, we're told that Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city and waited to see what's going to happen. And Jonah's still hoping. I mean, it's 40 days, it's a month and a week. Maybe Nineveh is still going to get blasted. And this is where the story takes a little sidestep. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very, what? Happy about the vine. That word provided is going to recur here. It's the same word as provided uh, when God provided that great fish back in the first chapter to swallow Jonah. Now Jonah is very, very happy about this plant. We'll come back to that one in just a minute, but look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered when the sun rose. God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Does that sound a little immature? I don't know. It's like God is dealing with a five-year-old here. But you understand that there is something going on here way deeper than Jonah just worrying about getting a sunburn or something. In, in this, this drama that's happening here in the fourth chapter, God is the actor. God is the one who sends the gourd, it grows into a plant. God sends a worm, and then God sends the wind. And Jonah is the audience. And what's happening here is that God is trying to save Jonah, not Nineveh now. Now notice that Jonah has gone a little east of the city. Remember, we talked about that back in verse 5. He's gone a little east of the city. Now, this is not just a random geographical detail here. Israel was located on the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean is to the west of Israel. To the east were Israel's enemies. And you might remember this from your reading. When Adam and Eve left Eden, what direction did they go? East. East of Eden. And when Cain killed his brother Abel, we're told that Cain goes to the land of Nod, which is east. And now Jonah has gone east to the place of God's enemies. And Jonah is now sitting under the shade of a plant that God has provided, which is just full of meaning for, for the Israelite reader. For Israel, for a desert people, shade is a loaded image. You see it all over the place in the Old Testament. In Psalm 121, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your what? Shade at your right hand. In Psalm 17, keep me as the apple of your eye, which is a very good thing. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Good thing. Psalm 57, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for my, in you my soul takes refuge. I take refuge in the what? The shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Over and over and over again, you get this image in the Old Testament. Shade or, or being in the shadow of means to be in the protection of of God. Protection from what though? Protection from enemies. In fact, the phrase that says that the gourd was to ease Jonah's discomfort literally in the Hebrew text says to deliver him from evil. Not discomfort. I don't know, but that rings bells. In the Lord's prayer towards the end, what do we pray? Deliver us from evil. That delivering us from evil is one of the big themes in Jonah. Jonah knew 
where the evil was, where the discord was. It was out there. It was Nineveh. It was out there with the people who aren't like me. And that's why Jonah is very happy about the gourd in the text. When this plant goes up, literally what the text says is that Jonah rejoiced in the gourd with great joy. Meaning that it's not just this physical protection from the sun, but metaphorically when the plant goes up, and protecting God's people in the, in the form of Jonah, an Israelite, it means that Nineveh is going to go down. That God is going to protect His people and that God is going to destroy their enemies. That's why Jonah rejoices in the gourd with a great joy. He is rejoicing in the destruction of the people he hates. Nineveh is going to go down. It's a funny thing. Jonah received grace when he hit bottom. Now he's offended by grace when it goes to somebody else. And Jonah has this superior, judgmental, unloving heart. And the comical thing about this, about this book, is that God is having a harder time of saving Jonah than He does in saving Nineveh. I don't know, I find it funny, sort of in a sad way. And you know when Jesus came, when Jesus came, the people that Jesus had the hardest time with were not the people that everyone considered to be the big sinners, not the prostitutes, not the tax collectors, not the people that you obviously associate with a place like Nineveh. The people that Jesus had the hardest time with were the people who considered themselves to be spiritually mature. They were the ones who had superior, judgmental, unloving hearts. You know, when I'm, I'm out driving along the road and I notice the flashing lights in the rearview mirror and I'm pulling over to the side of the road, I'm not crying out for justice. Guess what I'm crying out for? I'd like a little grace, officer. Can you find it in your heart, officer, to extend a little bit of mercy for a, a, a preacher. <laughs> Justice is when you get what's coming to you. And mercy is when you don't get what's coming to you. But grace is what you get when it's not supposed to come to you. You know, I have this, this little Jonah inside of me where I think what I want is fairness. But deep down, you know what I want? Grace. How many times do I forget what Jonah forgot? And I wish I had a more profound way of saying it than this, but it's just this, that you know, all people matter to God. Which people? Well, all people. People matter to God, every one of them. When one of them is separated from God by sin, and we're all separated from God by sin, we are all Nineveh, we are all Jonah, and it drives God crazy. It drives Him crazy. And it tears Him up. And, and, and my sin and your sin and the rest of the world's sin, it breaks His heart. But guess what? God is doing something about it. All of the evil, all of the darkness, all of the dissonance, all of the discord in the world, it came on, on, on to Jesus. And, and God, on that cross, 
was doing something great. Our God on that cross was reconciling the world to Himself. He was overcoming the dissonance with the power of the beauty of sacrificial love. And the harmony is literally seen in the church. There's never been a community like this before where nobody is an outsider. Where anybody who wanted to come in and was willing to repent got to be a son or a daughter. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, Roman, barbarian, male, female. Didn't make any difference. Why? Because all people matter to God. And the church is the one place, the one place, mind you, where there is no such word as foreigner. Countries have that word. And cultures have that word. But God has never looked at another human being and said, foreigner. He says, I want that one and I want that one for my son. And I want that one for my daughter. Why? Because people matter to God. And one more piece of the story, and here's where it gets real personal. This is the way the story ends. If, if you've read the story, you've noticed this before, and it might seem a little strange to you, but God is you know, talking to Jonah, and Jonah's ticked off about the plant, the gourd, Nineveh, the whole deal. And God goes through this, this little parable, and, and in verse 10, Jonah, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But, but Nineveh, you're so concerned about this plant. You didn't do anything about it. It was here, it grew up, and it's gone. But Nineveh, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Don't you love that last line? And there are a lot of cows there. I'm concerned about the cows too. And I think that when we read this at the very end, we're supposed to laugh at that point because it's a comedy. Love wins. God's love wins. Where sin wins, everybody loses. And even creation loses. Even creation gets mistreated. Sin is that violation of God's order, God's shalom, God's beauty. But when grace wins, it's good news for everybody. It's good news even for Nineveh. It's good news for the created order because even the animals get to win. You know, the bottom line is that most of us have a terrible imagination when it comes to God. You know, we've been sitting in these pews and, and sitting in Bible classes, some of us, for decades. And we've, we've listened to the Scripture and we've heard it taught and we've heard the sermons and we've, we've, we've sung the great theology of the hymns and we've read the Bible for ourselves and we can tell you the names of the 12 apostles and, and who the 13th was and who the 14th was and, and tell you things about, you know, we can name the seven cities of Asia Minor that Revelation goes to in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But we, we don't really know God. We don't really know God, and because we don't know God, we have no imagination. We can't imagine this city for one instant being like Nineveh and repenting because we don't have that kind of imagination that is able to envision things the way that God sees and His heart wants them to be. We stand every day 
in the shade of His grace. And I'm reminded, not only when I'm with you, but when I'm by myself. And not only when I'm by myself, but when, when I'm, 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 I'm even doing something productive, like reading God's Word or, or something. That if it wasn't for God's grace, that amazing grace, I'd still be lost. And I'd still be blind. And that treasure of, of, his, of that grace being poured out on me and on you is so precious. To know that He put His Spirit in me and in you. That we're His children. We get to say Father to Him. That our sins have been forgiven. That we can sleep at night. That there's a confidence and a significance and there's a power in this life. There's an understanding of life. There is a love within the individuals that make up this church family that's not experienced on the streets of our city. And it, it, it becomes so rich and beautiful that it dazzles us. And it becomes so blindingly beautiful that it becomes the very thing that we want to share with everybody else. And in our imagination, because we know that God is able to save somebody like me, able to save somebody like you, able to do this to Nineveh, even with a terrible sermon, five words, God never mentioned. Pretty ominous, pretty bleak. Forty days, Nineveh's gone. That God is so powerful and so strong and so beautiful that an entire city can repent. 120,000 people and all the animals. How do you imagine our city? Let's drill down and focus a little bit. How do you imagine your life? You know, some of you are addicted to things. Anger. Pornography. Greed. Lust. All of us struggle with some form of idol every day just by the very sake of being alive in the 21st century. And we're so active and we are so energetic with work and with all of these things. How do you imagine your life? Is God so big and so wonderful and so great and such a precious treasure that what happened in Nineveh can happen in your own life? Do you have that kind of imagination because of the knowledge of God that you've gleaned over the years or through the months or through the weeks and days of study that if He can do that for Nineveh, then He can do it for me? And if He can do it for me, and I change, and I see that, and I reap the benefit of every blessing being His child means, then maybe it can happen for an entire city as we go forth from this place. Not like Jonah, but as many Christs who love people the way that God loves people and willing to see people in our imagination, the way that God sees them. Everyone has the potential to become a child of God. Do you believe that? And that can happen for you this morning. If you've never given yourself to God in this way, 
what Jonah is saying is that even, even you, you Ninevite, you, you can be a recipient of God's compassion this very day. Or maybe there's some other ways that our church family can minister to you. I, I don't know what they might be. But if they're heaped up in your heart, this is the place where they get laid at the cross of Jesus. And we imagine our life being transformed into His likeness day by day, degree by degree, holiness into greater holiness.